it's nice to meet you, so to speak. Likewise, electronically. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I have to tell you that I, I, I think your book is one of the most important books I've read for a long time. And, uh, and I've read several wonderful reviews of it, but I don't actually think they do it justice. So um, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I have way too many notes. The luxury we have is that this is not a live interview. We get to have a real conversation, and I don't Excellent. really have a map. I, I have a lot of questions I want to ask you, in mm-hmm. part tracing the story you tell in the book and in part talking about some of the implications that you draw and some of the, um, mm-hmm. you know, some of the larger uh, lessons and meaning that you found in, 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 doing, in this project. So mm-hmm. um, let me ask my producer, are we okay? Are we sounding all right? You, oh, he needs to hear you. So tell right. me something mundane. You, you were just describing... Uh, like how I got here, which yes. is <laughs> often the question asked. Um, uh, very straightforward. I took a um, subway um, line, F line, from Brooklyn to 23rd Street. Okay. And uh, just walked through um, this very biting cold. <laughs> yeah. How um, long have you I been hope- in New York now? And from uh, September onwards, I sort of went away for a month, but I'm actually spending uh, nine months at the New York Public Library okay. as a fellow, one of their fellows there. Right. So um, I think that's a wonderful here. program. It is a very nice, very mm-hmm. nice program, okay. actually. Yeah, it's the best way, best way to spend, um, you know, time here in, mm-hmm. in New York, I think. For me, at least, it's worked out wonderfully well. Okay, well, I think we can begin... Um, do you, do you know about my program at all? Do you want me to give you? Yes, a... I did. I did look it up on the on the internet. Okay. It seems sort of um, just remarkably substantive, <laughs> wide ranging. I like the Reinhold Niebuhr. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr. Is that how you pronounce yes, it? Yes, Reinhold um, Niebuhr. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I was. Um, I, I read him a great deal um, while doing this Buddha project. Did so you? you really? Yeah. Well, I sort of, you know, one of the many people I read, but mm-hmm. also you know, well, well, someone I came to have a special admiration for. Well, I was, I was thinking about him as I was reading your book because you make observations about history in the largest possible sense, and that was such an important concern of his. So mm-hmm. that, that doesn't surprise me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'll start out by saying that I, I think I know <clears throat> something about Buddhism. I've interviewed a number of Buddhists. I've interviewed Thich Nhat Hanh, but... Uh, as I began to read your account, I realized, you know, I, I was surprised at how much of it astonished me and how much of it I didn't know. And I guess I was only saved from feeling quite ignorant by that, but in the fact that you also were surprised at what you discovered along the way. So I, I, I would actually like to begin, though, with something that you only allude to, um, and it's not really a central part of your of your book, but I, I would like to hear just a little bit more about the sort of Hindu sensibility and culture in which you grew up, and you know how much that part of your identity you think um, af- affected your desire to explore the legacy of the Buddha. Can you just say something about that? Sure. Well, I grew up uh, in what would be nominally a Hindu called called a Hindu family, mm-hmm. uh, but you know because Hinduism is um, such a flexible religion, if it is a religion at all. I mean, it's more a way of life, and it includes all kinds of faiths and beliefs and practices. And um, 
So we certainly, and I, and I mean me and my siblings, we never actually were under any pressure to conform to any set of ritual or any god, particular god that we wanted to worship or anything. I mean, my parents worshipped a whole range of, uh, or, or admired a whole range of gods and divinities. So um, I think if anything, if there was anything I sort of particularly picked up from uh, this upbringing of mine, it was a, perhaps um, a larger acceptance of you know just all kinds of things and, and not not a particular allegiance to any one mm-hmm. tradition or, or some sort of monolithic faith, which perhaps uh, helped me, you know, in my curiosity, in my interest in in all kinds of I could go into these areas without thinking that I have to be loyal to a particular set of ideas right. and I have to compare those sets of ideas to what I'm encountering in these other religions. So I could go into, uh, for instance, Buddhism. Um, with, you know, I suppose, slightly clearer mind uh, and a slightly, you know, blanker slate than people coming from, you know, more monolithic traditions like Christianity or Islam. So that way it was, uh, you know, I suppose, helpful to belong to this particular, to be part of this particular tradition. But at the same time, as I say in the book, Buddhism as a living tradition had died out in India many centuries. Uh, before and uh, it was it had become I mean the Buddha had become a Hindu god at least he was mm-hmm. considered as such uh, and it, even today I think if you were to ask um, uh, Hindus in India most people in India would say that the Buddha was a Hindu god was an incarnation of Vishnu just right. as Krishna and, and Rama are incarnations of Vishnu um, so I for a very long time uh, believed this and um, and I was, you know, of course, surprised to know that actually the Buddha may have been a historical figure and that there was, you know, quite a hmm. lot of evidence to indicate that he was one. And uh, furthermore, he was uh, very different from various other, you know, gods in the Hindu tradition in the sense that he never claimed to be God himself and certainly claimed uh, no divine attributes or didn't offer a theology and so on. So all of that uh, really, you know, came as a came as a surprise to me. But then, you know, this discovery sort of happened over several years, and uh, it also involved a whole lot of other things. Right. And did you did you come to um, a conclusion about why it was that Buddhism really essentially disappeared in India for for many generations, for centuries? Well, there are all kinds of theories um, trying to explain this. Um, you know, including that uh, the Muslims who invaded India from the sort of 9th, 10th century onwards, uh, they destroyed a lot of monasteries up in up in North India and in Eastern India. But uh, a lot of people, a lot of scholars would assert that Buddhism was already in decline by the time these sort of Muslims from, from Turkey and Central Asia and Persia came into India. And it had been in decline because Buddhism really did not sort of, you know, create a priestly class such as one that could sort of, you know, serve as a mediator between sort of ordinary people and, I suppose, the the, the gods. Um, It did not offer, you know, a whole set of ceremonies and rituals which people could adopt in their day-to-day life in the way Brahmanism or other aspects of other Hindu traditions did. Mm -hmm. And um, it's because of its suspicion of power, of worldly power, Buddhism really couldn't become very close, or Buddhists couldn't become very close to, um, you know, the sort of various kings and various emperors that ruled over India over various centuries. 
so it was it didn't quite enjoy the kind of royal patronage that people from other religious traditions could enjoy just because you know there was there was enough there in the traditions um to sort of bring them deeper into the world as opposed to slightly being slightly on the margins of it and you tell this fascinating story of how buddhism really in the 19th century sorry i'm got a bad voice this week was sort of rediscovered and uncovered, and not by Indians, but by often by by British colonizers, by explorers and amateur archaeologists. Which, I mean, <laughs> it is a fascinating story. I mean, so it was a it, it was a remarkable um, achievement in the sense of you know just creating this whole, um, forming this whole tradition, which mm-hmm. had kind of more or less um, disappeared, certainly from India. I mean, people in China and Japan and, and, and a lot of other places were Tibetan, aware. yes. Uh, and, and, of course, Tibet mm-hmm. um, and in Nepal. They were aware of, of the Buddha and had been sort of, you know, following a form of Buddhism for, for many centuries. But uh, India had uh, become largely unaware of, of this um, great man who was born, of course, in North India and spent all of his life there. And the West really had uh, very little clue um, about this this personality until um, you know the eight, late eighteenth and early early nineteenth century, so it was a great discovery in uh, in many ways one you know one of the great discoveries of the nineteenth century yeah. I think and we're kind of still you know seeing it being played out in in terms of uh, Buddhism's growing popularity in the west its transmission to the west it's sort of taking root in places like america mm-hmm. in, and and europe and um I, I I want to really get into what the Buddha was about and how the, how those ideas are important. But there's a you know one thing you do in the book is you you flesh out the Buddha as an historical figure, um, as a human being in in the world. And uh, one question I had, and I don't think you answer this, is uh, to me once I got to know the Buddha in that largest possible context in which you present him, this image that is everywhere of this sort of sitting, this fat Buddha with the belly, you know, mm-hmm. seemed seemed uh, completely inadequate to me as as the mm-hmm. kind of common representation we have. Do you know where that came from? And, I mean, how, how do you... I think it's it belongs to the Southeast Asian, mm-hmm. uh, East Asian traditions of, of Buddhism, this particular image um, or representation of the Buddha. Uh, I've never seen that within the Indian tradition. And, you know, there was also this Indo-Greek uh, tradition of representing the Buddha very early. I think one of the earliest traditions of uh, envisaging the Buddha, which uh, which made the Buddha look more like a European or a, or a sort of uh, Greek person. Mm. Um, so there are, I mean, all these different traditions have their own versions of what the Buddha might have looked like. And um, I think, you know, the further the tradition travels from its place of birth, the more, you know, distant the legend is mm-hmm. or the myth uh, is in the the more sort of various and surprising forms it takes. Yeah. Um, all right. So let you you really did uh, as part of your journey. You 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 went back and retraced kind of the the story of the Buddha's life and the Buddha's renunciation, that legend, <clears throat> and some of the real history that seems to be there. Um, what surprised you as you started to look at this person, this character, in his time originally? What really surprised me, because I mean, like like a lot of people, and, and of course, in the way of the Buddha is represented um, now, it's very easy to detach him from his 
real historical context. But of course, uh, I mean, it seems very obvious to say this, but everyone, wherever they are, in whatever time in history, whatever they are saying, it really all comes out of a particular experience of the world. It comes out of, you know, the, the, the sort of events around them. Um, the way in which they respond to those events. And I think the Buddha, in what he was saying, in what he was thinking about, was very much responding to what was happening around him. And, of course, he was um, responding to, you know, kind of tumultuous changes um, that uh, were were very unique, you know, in, in, in India at that particular moment. And I really began to understand the nature of those changes or what they really meant, uh, both socially and culturally. Say, say some more about that. Yeah, when I, when I sort of began uh, reading Nietzsche, and Nietzsche I'd been reading for, for much, uh, much longer before, you know, much, much, sort of, uh, bef- much before I'd actually started reading in Buddhism. Right. And I kept encountering in Nietzsche various references to the Buddha and to Buddhism. Almost every book of his has uh, several references to, to Buddha and the Buddhism. And Nietzsche has this very original idea about, you know, where the Buddha was coming from. And uh, he, he greatly admired the Buddha, which was, you know, which was quite extraordinary because yes. <laughs> he really didn't admire anyone else. Yeah. Um, and he kind of kept saying, look, uh, the Buddha was uh, in, in, in a sort of historical situation that I find myself in, which is that I'm seeing the end of something and the beginning of something quite extraordinary. And by that he meant that the old sort of world of Europe in which people have lived had lived in these very small tradition bound societies and had kind of, you know, been their lives had been governed by the sort of Christian religion and by the representatives of those Christian religions, the churches and various other authorities like, you know, the, the, the sort of the particular small political forms that they followed. Um Everything really was in in those worlds quite sort of self-contained, and they 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 didn't the the search for for meaning, a search for meaning to life, uh, was very much satisfied by you know the the kind of answers that were given to you right. by the church, by you know the political authority around you, and that of course began to change once. You know, modernity arrived, uh, and by modernity, Nietzsche, of course, meant the sort of great scientific political revolutions of his time, the French Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, and suddenly, you know, man or human beings discovered this enormous power that they had, and suddenly uh, they felt that they really could not believe in the same old gods anymore. And, you know, the secularization of Europe happens around that time. Right. When people discover science and people discover the the the, the laws of nature, um, and there is uh, with the breakup of these older societies and the creation of these new, very very large worlds, new states come into being, and at the same time they they begin you know the, there is now the sort of great wars begin to happen, great revolutions, extremely violent revolutions, and Nietzsche is observing all this and and saying you know there's something terrible is now going to happen because suddenly, you know, everything is permitted and God is dead. And God, I mean, people will, of course, still keep believing in God, but the lives are now controlled by other things altogether. Lives are controlled by very, very large impersonal forces of big business, empire, you know, completely secular institutions and ideas. 
Um, and I think when he talked about the Buddha being in a somewhat similar situation, what he really meant was um, that the Buddha came or was born in this world where uh, there were these sort of larger states coming into being. You know, people had been living in these small uh, societies which were basically sort of, you know, subsistence societies. They were dependent on agriculture for for the sort of, um, for their living. And then, of course, um, at some point, you know, the, the surplus money that they made out of agriculture, that became to, that came to be invested in commerce and trade. And, of course, new townships came up to accommodate these new commercial activities. And, and you know, people became more ambitious. There suddenly were new kinds of rulers emerging who wanted larger states, who wanted empires. Right. You know, the first empires in, in, in Indian history emerged around that time. So suddenly, once again, you have this sort of, you know, sense of people breaking out of their older worlds and people, human beings discovering their, their sense of power, feeling new desires within themselves. And uh, the Buddha observed all this and observed the great enormous violence that had been caused by this, by, you know, people sort of, you know, feeling their desires and wishing to fulfill them even at, at, at sort of, you know, great costs of, of, of violence. Um, and a lot of what he said and a lot of what he what he spoke about, especially about desire, about, you know, the sense that we have of us being autonomous uh, individuals, you know, with certain desires to fulfill and 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 not being connected to, to other people in, in, in really fundamental ways. All of that he wanted to undermine. And I think it was really Nietzsche's sense of how uh, he was in a roughly similar position in the Europe of the 19th century uh, compared to the Buddha in the 6th century BC. That is what really made me, you know, look at the mm. Buddha again and to really read more about the historical context that he was that he was born in and what, what kind of a world was he responding to. Also made me, enable me to see how the Buddha was still relevant. I mean, that is the ro- right. world that, that we are living in and certainly... Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people in the so-called third world have been living in for a very long time, which has seen these extraordinary, you know, traumatic uh, changes in the last 100, 150 years, this whole experience of colonization, the experience mm-hmm. of modernity, of development and progress, all of these ideas that, mm-hmm. you know, we've had to kind of work our way through in these places. And and the the legend that we know of the Buddha, I think if people know anything of the story of the Buddha, it is... You know, this has almost this kind of fairy tale quality. He was a prince, um, and had everything ventured out, and saw that there was suffering in the world, and renounced every the the life that he had led, the life of privilege. Um, I mean, the the way when you go back in and and tell the story, I mean, there's there's some tr- truth to that. Although although really he was part of a kind of clan, uh, as you say, structures, social structures that in his lifetime were disintegrating. Right? I mean, wasn't? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, how would you tell the story of the Buddha's renunciation that that beginning? Would you tell it differently than than what you hear passed down in sort of popular culture? I think that like like all sort of myths, um, you know, this myth also expresses a larger truth. And of course, it I mean, it's superficially, it seems very, very, um, very kind of simple. You know, the man goes out on a chariot and sees all these different sights and he sort of suddenly arrives at a realization that, you know, the world is full of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, nobody just goes out there and sees this stuff and, you know, 
suddenly starts thinking about this. Obviously, there have been other events working upon him, others, other sights, other other things he's seen and experienced. So I, I, I don't think it's, you know, too much of a leap of an imagination to suppose that the Buddha, before he went out, uh, even if he did go out on this chariot and you know, saw all these people, um, ill people or dying people, um, that he would have thought about these things. I mean, he, he certainly seems to have led a fairly sheltered life. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think, you know, which sort of gives him this peculiar advantage because, you know, what he was actually looking at were pretty obvious sights, but he could see something something new in them. Because uh, he wasn't you know, inured to them. He wasn't used exactly. to them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of, you know, work out, uh, you know, just remain obsessed with this insight into suffering and, you know, really work out its implications over the next next few years. So in that sense, he was, you know, particularly well placed to 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 notice it and to work upon, um, you know, the implications of what he what he discovered. I was a little bit surprised in your account, um, and this makes perfect sense. But um, again, it's not part of the image we have of the Buddha. That I mean, he 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 spent years uh, as an ascetic and 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 traveling and and learning and uh, and. Until he found his way to that to that moment of enlightenment or that period of enlightenment, what is that noise? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, That's is that you? <laughs> okay. I'll switch it off. Oh, okay. all right. Sorry about that. I thought it was someplace in the, you know, under the under the fig tree in Bodhgaya. Um, but in some ways, he he did go out and he was something of an evangelical figure. I mean, that word is so loaded in our culture. But uh, there, you know, he did then declare himself to be the enlightened one, and that he was an enlightened sage. And and then he and he went out to to make converts to to find people to follow, not really follow him, but follow what he'd learned. That I think he was, uh, you know, working in a highly competitive mm-hmm. arena. In uh, in the sense that there were so many people out there preaching all kind of stuff and talking about, I, I mentioned some of the sort of big um, countercultural figures at the time who were sort of going around and lecturing, discoursing on on various things, on on fate, and a lot of uh, extremely nihilistic thinkers too. I mean, people who said there's absolutely no point in anything at all, and you could just go around killing thousands and thousands of people, and you would. Not sort of you know um, deal not not have to deal with any consequences at all. So there was a lot of this kind of dangerous stuff around too. And I think in many of his discourses, many of his dialogues, he's constantly referring to uh, some of these some of these ideas and attacking them. So I think he was he was probably was very perturbed, very very sort of you know uh, dismayed by this this stuff that was being said by various people. And as I said, I mean, it was such a time of chaos that people could say just about anything and be believed because, uh, you know, ordinary people were so bewildered, they were so confused, they were ready to believe. It's a bit like now, they were just ready to believe anything <laughs> they were told. Right. And, um, and I think he felt it was important to, you know, uh, as it were, offer something and maybe it was important also to be a bit aggressive or show busy in offering this stuff or to be claiming that you know what he was saying was indeed wisdom mm. and of course looking back at him you know from this distance it, it does seem that he was a bit uh, he may have been a bit brusque or he may have tried to convert people but not you know converting in the sort of uh, in the sense we are familiar with in 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 the monolithic religions or the monotheistic religions of uh, of the Middle East, in um, in he wasn't by Buddh- conversion in Buddhism really means nothing at all because you know you have to do the hard work within yourself, right? 
and uh, it's not really joining saying, something. It's exactly. I mean, what mm-hmm. are you joining? Mm-hmm. There is there is nothing to join. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hard work to do, mm-hmm. but uh, really nothing to nothing to convert to. So, uh, the four noble truths would be the 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 basic premises. I mean, there's there's much more, and in fact, you. You go through all the um, many existing texts and stories about the Buddha and about his sermons and his talks. But the basic idea of um, of suffering, you know, just again, as I read your book, it it felt and this is what you're saying, you discovered it. It felt so present. I mean, the idea of suffering as all pervasive and everyday part of a world of change and decay rings so true in in the 21st century and it and it even and it even is in sync with what we know from from science right and from mm-hmm. cutting edge psychology and that really is the the basic insight of the buddha right absolutely i mean mm-hmm. i think the business of uh, how should i live you know it sounds it sounds sort of uh, just bewilderingly large but that is the question that almost all of us are faced with every day mm-hmm. and a set of ideas, a system of wisdom, which which is how I think of Buddhism, not as a religion, but as a system of wisdom, um, which sort of gives you these these ethical ideas, these ethical notions, and uh, which are which are not only to do with individual suffering or you know feeling discontented, but also right. the kind of larger suffering in the world makes you see how it comes about what can be done about it, how you can be responsible for it. I mean, of course, uh, it's interesting that, you know, after fancying ourselves for so long at having arrived at the summit of, you know, prosperity and affluence and, you know, look at all these wonderful marvels of science and technology, that uh, we find that none of these wonderful things, none of these wonderful institutions do not really give us much ethical guidance. I mean, science is certainly not proved uh, very capable of doing that. If anything, I mean, if you know, science mm-hmm. has actually proved that it can be put to all kinds of extremely destructive uses, and certainly scientists have not uh, proved to be very ethically sound people. And, and by that, I don't just mean, you know, A.Q. Khan uh, of Pakistan yeah. selling yeah. nuclear technologies, but also, you know, all kinds of people here who have developed these very destructive Well, science is morally neutral, as you say. I mean, it, it can is, go absolutely. either way. It's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, but, you know, we've had this faith, certainly in the, in the last 200 years, and, and the whole sort of Western tradition of philosophy has been replaced by science. I mean, in, in, in the sense that even philosophy in its positivist uh, mood wants to be like science, so it's no longer this sort of you know business of wisdom which it was for the Greeks, even as long as late as Spinoza. Uh, it's being still talked about as you know as a system of wisdom, not you know as a form of theory. But um, we have had this sort of great faith in in in, in science, and uh, we've had great faith in these um, institutions, political institutions, uh, right. the, the nation state, and of course, concepts like democracy and so on. But uh, uh, yeah. really, I mean, in individual lives, how useful are these, are these concepts, are these ideas? In I, mean, the I mean, let's, I mean, let's, you know, let's, let's spend some time on that. Because, it, so, so the other thing that you point out is that we do tend to find our we tend to look for satisfaction or at least to measure our stability and and success in terms of things we acquire whether that be kind of success or or material possessions right um 
and we tend to look to politics and social structures and political changes if, if we're thinking about changing the human condition substantially. And what you point out is that really in, in the Buddha's most basic teachings is a, is a completely different way of looking at the world and looking at life. Um, and in fact, one that makes a lot of sense when individuals ponder their own lives. I'm sort of putting it in my words, but I want you to react and, and put it into yours. Absolutely. I mean, I think um, one of the things that quickly, uh, for me, distinguished um, the Buddha from a whole lot of very important Western thinkers, and in particular, you know, I'm thinking of uh, Marx and I'm thinking also of Adam Smith. I mean, those are sort of yeah. two most influential, um, I think, thinkers of the last 200, 300 years. And in many ways, they their ideas have kind of shaped the modern world, the world we live in. Um, I think the Buddha differs so radically from both of them in proposing an idea of change that has nothing at all to do with large-scale restructuring mm-hmm. of a political system or an economic system. He's not saying, he's, he'll never say that, uh, that, he's, he's, I mean, that, that, that you have to sort of reform a whole society in order to achieve happiness, that you have to you know, create some kind of a perfect system or create institutions in order to ensure um, happiness for for most of the members of that of that particular society, he's saying he's sort of putting you know the sort of whole posing a kind of challenge to individuals is that what can you do about it yourself in your own life, and how can you arrive at contentment or happiness, and also create thereby create conditions for happiness of other people around you. The uh, pursuit of these utopias in the last sort of 200, 300 years, and they've been pursued most, uh, I think, fanatically uh, in the last 200 years than at any other time, whether, you know, it's a sort of Nazi utopia of the thousand-year Reich, which was uh, the most sort of um, uh, disreputable of them all, but also the communist utopia. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, you you see the pursuit of another kind of utopia, um, which is, you know, creating democracy and freedom around the world. Um, these utopias, certainly, in, I think in in Europe, you sense um, uh, you you have a great sense of disillusionment and exhaustion uh, with these political utopias um, because they've all sort of worked out so disastrously and they, they've created such suffering and such violence. I mean, why is the twentieth century the most um, violent century in history? Why is why has modernity proved to be so destructive? Why have these wonderful things which we thought were going to guarantee us happiness, everlasting happiness, have not worked out? Why have they ended so badly? And I think asking those questions really lead you to examining these these ideas on which a whole lot of these political systems have been created, the idea of individual happiness through consumption, through desire, and uh, a kind of individual desire which in, in the end really does not respect any limits it it can it can go to any lengths to fulfill itself so the 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 whole idea of a sort of society just consisting of individuals who are you know fulfilling their desires and feeling new desires all the time uh, it it is actually in the end a recipe for war and violence hmm. because 
you are going to need. And even just uh, un- plain old unhappiness. <laughs> plain old unhappiness, exactly. Because, right. you know, you, once again, the whole idea of uh, the same, the person who's desiring something yesterday is not the same person today. It, and we, when he gets the thing he desires, he'll, he'll already have moved on. So he'll probably be still, he'll be unhappy again. Yeah, you, 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 you throw in this quote from Oscar Wilde, which is so, so wonderfully resonant with the Buddha as you, as you juxtapose them. Oscar Wilde, who said, in this world, there are only two tragedies, one of not getting what one wants and the other of getting it. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful? Yes. And, and so, so here are some lines you know, from your book in terms of, again, what the Buddha said that was different, that, that in fact, um, he was analyzing how we experience reality rather than describing what reality is and saying that, control, that to control the mind was to change radically one's relation with the world. Um, that you could you could create a whole mental climate through awareness, and and that that in fact is the only way. In fact, being in charge of the win- of our own minds as a window to reality is the only way that in fact human beings can have, in a sense, some kind of sovereignty or, hmm. or real satisfaction. Yeah, I want to give you an example. I mean, this may seem very far away, but because yeah. um, you know things like torture and unhappiness um, of that kind has been so close to our minds and, you know, it's been in the news and all that. I've been thinking a great deal about these um, Tibetan victims of, um, you know, torture in the last 30, 35 years. And there have been remarkable studies done of these victims and how they've managed to survive that experience, uh, which is the most extreme instance, of course, of, you know, great pain being inflicted upon flesh, actual actual human flesh. Hmm. And um, people somehow training their minds to experience it in a certain way so that they come out of it without the kind of deep psychological disorders that a lot of people who experience torture have suffered, uh, who come out of it feeling compassion for the people who tortured hmm. them so mercilessly, feeling no no sort of hatred, no remorse. And that to me, I mean, you know, some people might say, well, they should really be angry out there and, and anger would lead them to creative political action. But I think there's something remarkable about how these people have managed to survive this and yet still be opposed to violence and injustice and yet be allied to a political cause. Um, and that, you know, is an illustration to me, a very vivid one of how you know, you can train your mind to experience things in a certain way and you don't actually have to surrender to these these emotions of anger and, and hatred and, and malice and, and uh, vindictiveness. And that is uh, such a counterintuitive image that I think it's almost hard for a Western a Western mind to even hoist in, even make sense of or know what to do with, right? It is. I, and I think the, you know, the, the once again, there are, you know, very important cultural differences here in the sense of Western sense of the ego, the Western sense of individuality is so much highly evolved and so much sort of valuable to people here. I mean, the sense of the self, the sense of being an individual, the sense, this whole idea of self-expression, mm-hmm. uh, all of these are such important things in this culture. So when you grow up in that particular tradition, uh, you have this, you know, great sense of your being completely unique, individual, and all of that. And that sense of human dignity, when it comes under assault, 
I think it really undermines some very, very deeply held suppositions about yourself, who, who you are. So people whose identities are more fluid, which are not so fixed, and who you know, are extremely skeptical about this, this whole sort of notion of the self or the notion of the ego and can see the ego as a kind of constructed entity, an entity held together primarily by desire, I think perhaps those people are better able to deal with these experiences. And do you feel that that uh, that that's also a a difference between I don't know what we might call a Western and an Eastern mindset? I mean, as someone who grew up in India, do you feel that you that you did inherit a more fluid sense of identity in your culture? I think I did. I mean, to grow up in a place like India is really to actually grow up with a whole set of overlapping identities. I mean, there's mm-hmm. no one identity that you have. You know, you are. Um, you know, you're a son and you're a brother and you're a student and you are, you know, Hindu at home and you are you go to a Christian school. So you are something else out there. You, you know, you, at home sort of you, you, you practice these very ancient or your, your parents, you see your parents practicing these very ancient rituals and, and doing these, you know, performing these very, very, very old rites. And you are at the same time working on computers, reading so Nietzsche, all these many, <laughs> many different worlds. Yeah. And, you know, there's no way you can actually have a, a, a solid, stable identity. I mean, I think it's futile to even attempt to have one. And in a way, you kind of naturally acquire these or, or live with these, you know, different worlds and with these different identities. I would like to, um, you, you also you talk on your book about how, as you got into all of this, um, the Buddha's, the Buddha in the world and these ideas, um, you felt that, in, on the one hand, Western culture, including this idea of the ego and Western definitions of success, um, had defined success for you in some sense, or at least that was maybe a part of those conflicting and overlapping uh, ideas that were, were that were presented to you. But that, as you got into these ideas yourself, you you found that even some of the great icons of the Western way of being in the world, like Adam Smith, who you mentioned a minute ago, had real doubts and even expressed reservations about the shadow side of Western culture and Western progress that really echoed some of the Buddha's insights. And I, I just want to read this passage. I, I found it very striking. You, he, you, you quote Adam Smith saying... Um, that there's kind of a deception which keeps in continual motion the industry of mankind. Uh, after all, it is this which first prompted that prompted prompted them to cultivate the ground. Oh, sorry, let me start earlier. But I'm going to read this whole passage. But even Adam Smith, the proponent of free trade, had wondered early in his life if power and wealth, those great objects of human desire, can make one immune to anxiety, fear, sorrow, diseases, danger, and death. He had considered the idea that happiness could be secured through desiring more things than one needs, a deception, and had eventually concluded that it is well that nature imposes on us in this manner. It is this deception which rouses and keeps in continual motion the industry of mankind. Well, <laughs> he, he was certainly a man who uh, did not uh, you know, like being bored for a very long time, just wanted to keep working. I wanted others to keep working mm-hmm. and being industrious. And uh, I think the whole idea of unproductive time and um, 
the idea that you can you know spend your time doing other things than actually working or producing is still I find that a very alien notion here I mean, <laughs> most people even when they have free time they want to be doing something or other you know taking in a bit of culture I mean, in so this on. country in well yes and, and in the west on the whole yeah. uh, Ian Forster has this wonderful uh, passage in in his novel a passage to India about the sort of arts of leisure that um, the sort of modern West will never learn. And he talks about this sort of wonderful um, uh, festival he goes to in, and, and there are sort of singers there and people lounging around on sofas and in this very relaxed pose. And it's a beautiful passage about the sort of whole art of art of leisure in, in, in these sort of older traditions. But anyway, that's getting off on a, on a different um, tangent <laughs> yeah, altogether. But, uh-huh. Sorry, uh, what was the what was the question? Well, or? But, well I'm I, I'm curious. I I think that you were you were somewhat stunned and 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 in a sense felt that you had been deceived growing up in a culture which was given the Western this Western way of acquisition and industry as as the measure of success to which your your country was also supposed to aspire. And then, and then finding even in these leading minds of of the way we became, um, finding some of the same, in some ways, the same kind of analysis of the human condition that the Buddha made. But, but true. you know, but settling with yeah. a deception. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's sort of odd. I mean, I've, I've begun to think of both India and, uh, or this may sound very odd, but also America as living, at least in the last century, in a particular state of historical innocence in that this whole European experience of the 19th century of, uh, you know, unlimited progress, unlimited expansion, great economic dynamism, which is really the model that, you know, a magazine like, say, The Economist promotes when it talks about, you know, what the IMF or the World Bank should be doing Mm -hmm. in the third world and what India should be doing or what China should be doing. And this is how, you know, we create happiness and how we create sort of wonderfully productive societies with very high GDP and so on. So these are ideas that we are now living with. But what happened in uh, Europe in uh, in the early 20th century is kind of sort of an experience that uh, whose lessons people in India did not learn. And I think in a strange way, even America was denied the lessons of that uh, experience because America at that time experienced this extraordinary growth in the early 20th century. Well, describe what, f- what, what you're saying, what we didn't learn. Well, the the First World War, which which now seems to sort of is extraordinary moment in European history when suddenly, you know, you have this endless slaughter um, yeah. in over four years. And there's a whole generation that's wiped out and all the leading thinkers and writers and artists of Europe sort of now start thinking, why did this happen? Where did all this belief in progress and technology and science take us to this horrible, destructive war? And so you have, you know, modernism, artistic modernism emerges out of this whole sort of experience, this terrible experience. And any the, any uh, European country one can think of, there are people out there, whether it's T.S. Eliot, whether there is, you know, Joyce, there is, there is sort of uh, Paul Valéry in, in, in France, Robert Musil, Thomas Mann, they're all thinking about, you know, what is going on, what has happened, why, have, why has this happened in Europe when we taught ourselves to be leading this, you know, wonderful hmm. march towards this glorious future and we were right up there in the avant-garde of humanity's march 
and suddenly we've sort of plunged into this this completely senseless war and i think it's a sort of it's such a crucial event at the first world war and this whole uh, lot of reflections upon the nature of society the nature of the changes of the last 100 150 years industrial revolution all of these think people are thinking about it and you know arriving at a very skeptical notion of these utopias the idea of progress the idea of history being this great narrative of progress right. and somehow all of this was completely lost on uh, you know sort of writers or intellectuals or thinkers in india who were still working with 19th century notions of progress who were thinking well if only we can duplicate what europe did for itself in the 19th century we'll be on our way and um, and america because you know of the in the limited involvement in these wars of europe they also came out of this whole thing relatively innocent and of course i think vietnam was perhaps the 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 big mm-hmm. shock and mm-hmm. and i don't think india has really received that um, great shock yet but i think it will i mean because it's sort of it's really the trajectory is the same this aspirations for great power status this sort of you know longing for power longing for um, prosperity and uh, it's it's not going to end well but you know one of the things that that you do in your book is you you look at history again in the largest possible sense and and this seems to be a story that repeats itself in different ways i mean <clears throat> you could, sorry you compare for example alexander who uh whose whose legacy was really one of was one of violence of of mm, conquest and violence to the indian and that was in the i believe the 3rd century bce and then you compare him to the indian ruler ashoka who converted to buddhism and uh and had a very different kind of legacy and yet his has been obscured by history and alexander is someone who's just gotten a new blockbuster hollywood movie done about him in the year 2005 right <laughs> absolutely yeah. i think i mean the the sort of whole uh, you know um this admiration for powerful people and admiration for people who supposedly make history or create history um this is really become a very dominant theme in uh, in our in this culture in the last sort of you know 150 200 years and of course we have to remember the history as a discipline history as a as a sort of um you know well 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 formed with its own boundaries with its own sort of um, uh laws is also a very recent development mm-hmm. really you know emerges in the last uh, 200 years when I mean, previously people thought of history as a mere record of you know events that are worth remembering or commemorating but now history becomes this sort of arena of human action where you can actually change history where you can actually make history and so people looking back at alexander i mean the whole cult of alexander really i mean it's it's survived over the centuries but it it receives its apotheosis in in the late 18th 19th century okay. with Napoleon who loved um, Alexander and wanted to of course imitate him and Hitler loved Alexander and and you know wanted to do what um, Alexander had done so uh, with the sort of arrival of uh, modernity and the arrival of this notion of man making history you start loving all these uh, and resurrecting selectively okay okay yeah selectively yeah. and of course Ashoka someone like Ashoka uh becomes um utterly irrelevant tell the story I mean, of ashoka briefly for people who haven't heard of him 
he was um, an an Indian uh, emperor. He was, you know, the the sort of um, the, he he held down this great empire, which came into being shortly after the Buddha's death. And uh, like you know, people before him, he was a very brutal man. He um, great believer in conquest and expansion, and he uh, conquered this eastern Indian um, state of Kalinga. And um, after this conquest, which was very extremely successful, but also very, very violent, um, he saw the enormous damage he had caused um, and, and uh, deaths of uh, thousands and thousands of people. And he was suddenly struck by this great remorse and you know what he had done. And, uh, and from that point, he kind of gave up uh, violent conquest and, and violent wars and uh, became gradually to, um, you know, came sort of gradually to introduced Buddhist ideas into statecraft. I mean, he didn't, I don't think he actually embraced Buddhism or became a Buddhist. Once again, the mm. you know, idea of converting to Buddhism was, okay. is a bit odd. Um, mm-hmm. What he did was uh, he made non-violence a kind of uh, state policy whenever it was possible, whenever it was viable. Of course, he still had punishments for criminals and, and uh, you know, they, they were, he still had an army, but he tried as much as possible to combine um, Buddhist ideas of social welfare, compassion, and to be, you know, as a ruler, the model of righteousness. I mean, the whole Buddhist um, emphasis, in so far as Buddhism engages with politics, it's it's very, um, you know, keen on this idea that the ruler should be absolutely above board and would should embody an idea of of an ideal of righteousness, and Ashoka try to do that you know, by making himself accessible, by making himself and his ideas and the working of his thoughts, you know, completely transparent. For instance, in the inscriptions that he had, um, you know, sort of inscribed on, uh, on, on stone and iron pillars and erected all across India, he mm-hmm. would say things like, you know, I, I, it's, it's, very, um, it's, it's very difficult to do good um, because, you know, good and evil are... Um, Unmixed, unmixed things, and um, you have to worry about the consequences of doing good. All of these very complex ideas that he's thinking, uh, which he shared with his subjects. Um, of course, uh, now he would be accused of flip-flopping, um, <laughs> okay. of not having uh, clear ideas okay. or, or having a decisive personality. Mm-hmm. But the very fact that he could see how the world was such a complex place, and there wasn't, you know, such a clear-cut good and evil out there. That's I find something quite admirable about him. What you just the way you just talked about him also reminds me very much of Reinhold Niebuhr and his analysis of of human nature and society. Um, <laughs> all right, so I think the problem is that, uh, and maybe I'd be curious about how you have been discussing this book with being an American now, because I think an American, a modern American, might look at this history you tell and might still compare someone like Alexander and Ashoka or 21st century America and India and say it's clear which version of reality, which ethos is on the winning side, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you, you know, they would, they would say simply this, this, uh, this ethos of acquisition and building and progress and power is what in fact is what in fact works in this world we inhabit. How would you respond to that? Well, I would very uh, 
you know, quickly challenge the, the, the notion that it works. Uh, where is the evidence that it works? I mean, uh, what we do see is uh, the sort of enormous costs of um, sticking to this ideal of, of, um, of acquisition, endless acquisition, endless expansion, um, endless preemption. I think what we are seeing now is a sort of real crisis. And of course, um, one can obscure the crisis by talking about completely different things altogether, talking about terrorism or talking about, you know, various sort of um, um, threats still to materialize in the future and so on. But the fact that this model is not working, the model has clearly proved to be inadequate. It's already created the most violent century and is all set to, you know, create or to lead us into an even more violent century. I mean, the, 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 the 21st century has not started off very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in what way is this, um, is this model, model working? I mean, I, I really do not, do not see any evidence for that. Um, what I do see is a whole lot of confusion, a whole lot of bewilderment, a whole lot of hatred, a whole lot of violence out there. And, um, you know, even people, even societies that are supposedly doing extremely well, uh, such as China or India. Yeah. When you actually start thinking about 20, even 20, 30 years down down the line, down the, in the future, you wonder about their big populations. You wonder about their great needs. What will these societies need once they come into their own as middle class consumers of the kind people in America are, the kind of the, the this amount of oil they would need, the amount of energy resources they will have to find to sustain their populations at the standard of living they will have arrived at at that point, if they do arrive at that standard of living. And where is that oil going to come from? You know, where is all the resources that we need to sustain these lifestyles, to sustain this model of development and progress going to come from? Um I think it's unsustainable, and that's why we are heading towards. And we already have, uh, we already live in such a such a you know such sort of violent times. Um, so I'm 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 completely unpersuaded by by the notion that uh, the systems we have are working. They're not. They've failed. They failed a long time back. We just sort of, you know, because of uh, this sort of you know power that can be manifested with bombs or that can be manifested with in standing armies and, and all kinds of other things. Um, that power, the fact of power obscures the failures, but the fact that you have to use violence all the time, you know, really points to the failure of, of these systems in mm-hmm. many ways. You you traveled through India, uh, or you, you, you tell about traveling through India at the same time that you were working on the book on Buddha, on, on other projects. And I wonder if you would tell... Some of the stories that that are in there, I don't know if if you want to focus on Kashmir as kind of a paradigm, as the contradictions and tragedies, um, um, or you know the Bihar. You talk about the violence there, but just I don't I don't think Americans get I don't think Americans hear those kinds of stories as also what is happening in the modern world and what is happening in a place like India, which, as you say, is often cited as a great example of an emerging democracy? I think that's a very interesting question because, I mean, I think, I I hope I made um, clear in the book how, you know, what may seem like completely unrelated journeys, like going going to Kashmir to, um, you know, find Mm -hmm. out about the political situation there, to find out about human rights violations there, to find out why 
you know, 50,000 people have died in the last 10 years there can be is can be any related to can be in any way related to a book about the Buddha or an exploration of the Buddha's teachings. But the fact that, you know, it's these journeys really which made me think again or made me think again about what the Buddha has to tell us today and also made me think maybe, you know, in sort of more uh, more sort of analytical ways about these assumptions that I myself as a journalist had going into these places, like when you go into a place like Kashmir, you go into a place like Afghanistan, uh, what you are really assuming is that what this place needs is a bit of democracy, uh, a bit of a you know nation building of the kind we've already accomplished back in the West or in, in a place like India and everything will be fine. But what we don't really understand is um, how these societies have lived, not just survived, but lived, even flourished for centuries and centuries, and how they have arrived at their own particular forms of wisdom, their own particular forms of you know being together with many, many ethnic components, with many, many, you know, in, in, in the case of Kashmir, several religions coming together, several religions living together. For, and you described, for the, yeah, the first time you went there, that it was this incredibly peaceful place also. It was, and it has been, I mean, remarkably peaceful for, for, for many centuries. Yeah. I mean, the Islam that came to Kashmir was a sort of Sufi-inflected Islam. It was never a fundamentalist Islam. And, of course, fundamentalist Islam is also a very, yeah. very modern phenomenon, mm-hmm. so Kashmir wouldn't have experienced that anyway. Yeah. But they've had this extremely tolerant variety of Islam there, which coexisted with the pre-existing uh, Hindu and Buddhist traditions there for, for many centuries. And once again, you have to ask yourself the question. And I mean, it's raising these questions, which is important. Why is it that Kashmir has become such a violent place in the last 50, 60 years? Why has this tradition, which is known for its great sort of poetry and the beauty of its if its songs, the beauty of its architecture, why has it produced this horrible violence in the last 50 years? Mm-hmm. And only then, uh, if you frame the question correctly, would you be able to see how, you know, this whole idea that we are going to modernize Kashmir, we are going to make Kashmir part of this new democratic nation state of India. And of course, there's no time for religion because we are all going to be secular citizens, secular consumers of the new modern nation state of India. And um, there is uh, no scope for any, 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 any other visions in this, in this particular model we've got there. And so what you have is, is sort of people coming in and telling people, telling the Kashmiris that they have to now be loyal to this Republic of India, which most of them had never been to. Most of them don't know anything about. But they have to be loyal to it because India, you know, of course, is this wonderful centralized state and it's now going to be a superpower in the next 30, 40 years and they better be part of it. Otherwise, they'll be left out of the march of history. So this this great sort of this society which has lived in this relative uh, peace for, for all these years is given these new ideas of um, you know democracy, of being equal citizens, and all this fed all this rhetoric, and of course the rhetoric always lags behind reality. The reality is that you know it's this a lot of this is just basically the rhetoric of the ruling elite that hmm. that wants to create a basis for its own legitimacy. So they are the ones who are saying, well, we are going to lead you into this new world, and we are the experts, we are the elite, 
And some people, of course, get uh, get promoted up into this elite. But a majority of the Kashmiris remain, you know, and, and sometimes the conditions even worsen. I mean, they had a they had a functioning economy. They had a they had a sort of you know functioning society. And suddenly it's it's broken into by these foreign elements. And what do the Kashmiris do after several years? They 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 take up arms, and they are of course supported by these radical Islamists in in Pakistan and 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 in Afghanistan, who are also in a way suffering from the sort of same phenomena. It's like mm-hmm. you know the communists coming into Afghanistan and saying we're going to modernize the whole place yeah. overnight. It's not you know we're not even going to wait for too long. We're just going to do it and going into villages, forcing people to do this and to do that and you know, creating a kind of backlash. So before you have created enough economic prosperity, enough, you know, you've created the economic basis for modernization, you're sort of pushing through these ideas because those ideas have been, you know, verified by Marx or these very ideas are are the way the, the, the world is going. It's the danger of exporting these abstract models of modernity, abstract models of democracy and secularism to these sort of very, very old, very traditional societies that has created such incredible violence in the last, you know, 50, 60 years. And this is what we are seeing in these places. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, to circle back, I mean, how does, how has your exploration of the Buddha and his life and teachings, how does that speak to you to those questions that you've just well, posed? Well, I think it sort of offered me a new way of looking at, uh, you know, what human beings are here to do and the other ways in which human beings have formed and can form a society or live together that societies or, or states do not have to be built upon, you know, these particular notions of um, of, of, of the sort of... these, these the, or do not have to... Ha- conform to these particular models that we've had in the last 200, 250 years, that there can be other ways of being. I'm not saying that these uh, these sort of models of society are in any way, um, you know, imminent or any, any way we can realize that. But I think what's important now, because for a lot of people, and, and, and it's been particularly true of myself, it's very easy to, you know, just settle into despair because... Yeah the way the world we've created for ourselves just seems like such a prison. There seems no way out. And it seems like this is the only way. Let's just, just keep pushing it forward as much as much as we can go and see what happens. And maybe it'll all work out. Maybe it'll all, 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 all be fine in the end. But I think a whole lot of new thinking is needed. I mean, this is why people like Reinhold Niebuhr, so many of these thinkers are, are, are still so important that they, uh, people who sort of, you know, come out of this experience of Europe in the twentieth mm. century, who meditated on that experience, really knew that this was a serious crisis. That this was not going to be dealt with by invoking democracy every mm. every two seconds or by just saying, you know, free enterprise is going to solve all the problems, or free trade is the answer, or globalization is the answer. That you know, this is avoiding the problem. You it's know, really looking. And now, new ways in which human beings can 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 sort of relate to each other. But the 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 uh, the irony is that if you if you start invoking the Buddha at these particular problems, then so we're talking now on kind of a macro scale. But the Buddha would point back to not individualism, but but to the individual person's ability to control 
his experience of the world, his or her experience of the world, right? I mean, what would the Buddha say to Kashmiris who are caught in that tragedy? Well, I don't. I think he would probably say something different to them in terms of um, what he would say to compare to what he would say to their um, Indian overlords. Okay. Um, I can see. I mean, it's it would be interesting to speculate how he would say respond to yeah. uh, contemporary America, where uh, he would see a whole lot of centralized state power, um, although you know, big government, everyone is sort of suspicious of, and certainly the conservatives are suspicious, but the fact that big government exists and is growing bigger all the time in terms of the control it has and the helplessness individuals feel about not having control over their political destinies, of not having great say. I mean, this whole social security debate that's going on. And what he would argue for is sort of devolving power down so that people can create you know, effective functioning democracies within their little communities, the places where they actually live, rather than looking up to these remote sort of congressmen, to these remote senators and these bills that nobody even reads being passed in in D.C. and in all this endless debate and uh, which no one can really follow, no one has the time to follow. I mean, the world, these democracies have become so complex, have the decision-making has become so obscure that nobody really knows what's going on. I mean, nobody's, nobody's participating anymore except... You know, once every four years when they turn out to vote. And even then, most people don't turn out to vote. And right. this is also the case with democracies elsewhere. So the 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 argument for, you know, a, a different way of looking at this, at this sort of, at this problem at, and, and really identifying what the problem is. Also, you know, examining these notions of, uh, of, for instance, I mean, one of the arguments I heard repeatedly after November elections was, you know, if only people knew their self-interest, they would have voted for Kerry. Um, I find that a rather puzzling argument because a lot of people uh, uh, could see where their self-interest was and they voted for for George W. Bush. The self-interest still the motor of, you know, is still be held as this motor of of modern society. And if so, that self-interest of Americans... Does it not at some point collide with the self-interest of, of people elsewhere? I mean, I think we have to rethink these notions that mean, we so sort that, of assume. How can that for, be a, uh, a primary value if, if that, in ab- fact, is true? Absolutely. A moral value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, you describe, um, you were in India when 9-11 happened, and you describe watching that and saying to yourself, having this moment of realization that the brutality of the world I had grown up in had now come to America. You make this really interesting observation, I think, which is really an observation about globalization, which in some ways 9-11 brought home to Americans, um, that there seemed to be no refuge now from a history that was now truly universal. That's a, a very big thought about the time in which we live. I mean, you, you talked earlier about how the Buddha grew up in this moment of the end of things and the beginning of something new, and, and that's certainly one way of talking about how the world we're living in is new. Well, um, I was thinking, I mean, because so much of um, what has happened in the last um, 200 years really begins in Europe and begins in the West, um, and I think of America as a sort of you know, part of, part, very much part of this, um, part of the West. And then it is radiated out of Europe in terms of people going out and conquering and, you know, acquiring these new lands and these new territories all across the world in Asia and Africa, breaking into these very, very old societies. 
and reshaping them, refashioning them. And uh, all of these people, you know, thinking of themselves as making history, of making a new world. Um, and then, you know, I think this sort of notion of history uh, that we in India, people in India, had absolutely no clue to. I mean, the the, the notion of history as something or, you know, acting in time, which just changes the world. These are completely alien ideas in the Hindu tradition or on the Buddhist tradition right. where m- man is not given this kind of power okay. you know, or in Islam for that for that instance. So these people are utterly bewildered by, you know, the sort of onslaught of Western ideas and Western technologies. And this is really what is globalization. I mean, globalization is not a process that, that begins in the last two, 10 years or 20 years or so. It's been going on for the last uh, 150, 200 years. The mm-hmm. very fact that I sit here speaking in English, which is not uh, my native language, my, not my first language. I'm sitting here, you know, wearing Western clothes, an Indian born in India, um, and, you know, have grown up with these sort of diverse traditions, both Indian and Western, just goes on to show how globalization is a much, uh, much older event. Mm-hmm. And it has gone well in certain cases, and uh, it's not gone so well in, in many other cases. And what we are seeing is a kind of response to this um, on the part of people who feel left out, who feel frustrated, who feel politically impotent, uh, not able to control their destinies, utterly bewildered people, utterly confused people, resorting to violence, resorting to ideological violence of the kind we, we saw on 9-11. And um, I think, you know, these these dispositions to ideological violence are kind of shared across the world. I mean, they're not particular to 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 Al-Qaeda or to the BJP or the Hindu nationalists in India. They are, I mean, anyone is now capable of them because mm-hmm. this is, you know, this is now, this, the world that we live in is kind of, has been created by this, this sort of, you know, spread of, of, of ideas and technologies. And when these ideas spread, they become, or they, when they are imposed upon these societies, they become ideologies. And, you know, people then come up with counter ideologies. And this is what we're seeing in the case of radical Islam. You know, let me, um, I'd like to read another, another passage from your book, uh, which, well, I'll read this and then, and then ask you something. Mm-hmm. You write, in his own time, the Buddha saw self-made men, new social and economic forces. He could sense the dangers in men freed from traditional morality and claiming to be self-directed individuals. It is partly why he questioned the very premise of the autonomous self-directed individual, that he is someone who chooses and pursues his own desires and thereby comes to possess his individuality, the hypothesis that lies even now in an age where mass manipulation is a respectable industry at the basis of modern civilization. This is moving away a little bit from what you were saying, but really at the root of this is, is Westerners who you know, take history in their own hands, right, as individuals and then collectively. But I think, I wonder if, I I think that maybe we're at this moment in history where, in this country, where people might be able to hear a critique like that and internalize it in a way they couldn't, wouldn't 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I wonder if that's, if you share that sense. Perhaps, um, um, because the um, you know the the whole sort of ideological utopias that were uh, pursued in um, in Europe, I mean, they certainly um, 
because they ended up, they ended in so much suffering. In Europe, I think there is a great sense of exhaustion. And mm -hmm. one reason why um, Europe has been very reluctant to join in, apart from Great Britain, of course, with the United States in its um, you know, recent sort of adventures abroad, um, because they, I think, have a shrewder sense of what it entails to you know, go into these areas. They have this historical experience of colonialism behind them, and, you know, and particularly a country like France, which has been badly burnt by um, right. in its sort of own colonial adventures. Um, I think that realization, um, and you know, when I read people in uh, American writers in the late 60s or early 70s, I see it, it's extremely vivid. I mean, this whole sort of uh, notion, and particularly I find that in the work of Hannah Arendt, who's constantly mm. questioning um, this sort of notion of progress, this notion of history, this notion of making history. Um, but there comes a time when, you know, uh, there is there is very little writing of that sort. And I think, you know, in the late 70s, it begins to disappear and so on. And at some point, I'm sure uh, there will be more, um, you know, writers or, or thinkers here coming back to examining these, these notions. And of course, uh, now you've got the neoconservatives here who have appropriated many of these notions of making history or or, or sort of, you know, making the world safe for democracy and so on. I'm sure yeah. the re critique that now emerges would be a very powerful one, which would which would en encompass not just the particular actions of these neoconservatives, but also the larger, you know, ideology that is driving them. And um, I think that, I think, is the uh, responsibility, I mean, in one, one sense, of the left here. And, um, but, you know, I, I mean, I'm... I feel slightly ambivalent about this because the left has so much for so long believed in that ideology itself yeah. of, of endless progress. Well, and then, so yeah, so. and you, yeah, you know, th this idea which really the Buddha is set over against the left or the right to the extent that, and this is something that I think is very simple, but you make it very clear um, in the book that it's a, it's a different idea of approaching the problems. It, it is, as you say, offering a cure for human suffering that does not involve large-scale restructuring of state and society, that doesn't look at social change in the same way. Yeah. How, how do you um, move through the world, read differently, um, ponder these questions, these kinds of questions you've raised with me differently because of this book you've written about the Buddha in the world? Well, it certainly really, um, I think, changed my way of looking at a lot of things, you know, quite quite radically, I think, um, in in that I've perhaps just sort of become more skeptical of um, a lot of the assumptions I previously worked with when um, going to, uh, when reporting on, you know, say, sort of Kashmir or, or Afghanistan or or Pakistan, or, or just reporting on events in India, um, or, you know, writing fiction and so on. Mm -hmm. um, it sort of uh, made me, I suppose, more suspicious of abstractions, <laughs> and abstractions uh, which kind of, you know, hold out some kind of um, um, contentment or, or, or bliss or happiness in some, you know, unknown, unknowable future, and saying, well, you have to um, sacrifice your present for the sake of that, and uh, in the end, it will work out even if the means we are using are not so great. But the ends would be would hmm. be fine, and I think it's made me 
more suspicious of ideas like these and made me more committed to you know being in the present living in the present and and using ethically sound means in the present being ethically responsible to the people around one right now not in the future but right now uh, and the future will then take care of itself if you if you if you are if you're honest and if you're you know clear in your in your um, in your sort of moral thinking at this moment and to not sort of you know um, let these ima- abstract institutions carry the burden of the pain of people living now but not say that you know four years down the line we might have democracy and it'll all be wonderful no i think that it will be too late uh, four years even four days will be too late i think we need to look at we need to attend to what we have in front of us and um i think that really has been the most um i think personally for for me the most sort of important change in my in my uh, perception of of um you know the world i i live in and move through what what are what projects do you have coming up what's your next and i wonder if you're if you the way you think about what you want to write about or what you want to take on as a subject has changed through wrapping your arms around the Buddha in this way? Well, I think sort of... I mean, I keep uh, doing the same things in the sense that I keep sort of traveling and <laughs> um, I keep going to places that I know little about and want to, you know, know more about and want to really go and talk to people. Like, I'm thinking of going to Nepal. Um, it's a very small country and hardly ever features on in the newspapers here or indeed anywhere else. Um they've sort of experienced this rather, uh, you know, traumatic um, yes. few last few years. Um, and now they are in the midst of this um, extraordinary insurgency, which is led by people who call themselves Maoists. Um, and that, to me, is a fascinating phenomenon. And, you know, they are extremely popular. They, they control 80% of the countryside. And, you know, communism, which is kind of um, ruled out and, and kind of dismissed as a sort of um, has been... 10 almost 10 12 years back is making a comeback in in a place where no one expected it to arise in the first place and um it's also making um, its presence felt communist movements in in large parts of northern india and this is something i've become very interested in in um, in how uh, these sort of people um organize themselves into these movements and these are people who are completely out of this new world of created by globalization, this sort of new elites that have been created in places like India and Nepal who are extremely cruel and ruthless in the way they deal with the the people out of you know the net of the globalization in their countries. So there is a backlash to to you know a lot of this um, new uh, small uh, prosperous elites being created in these places and i think this is part of it part of the backlash the the rise of this sort of movement that we all thought had had died a long time back hmm. so i'm interested in that and i'm interested you know in in knowing more about it simply because i'm i don't think i'm i've, I've i'm being very well informed by uh, by the newspapers and <laughs> magazines i read on about this okay I think I think we've covered lots of ground, and I want to see if there are any questions um, behind the glass. I'm, I'll be quiet for a moment and be listening. Sure.
Right, right. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right, so the question of... Uh, of whether this kind of Buddhist analysis of, of human nature, if, if this were embraced, or whether this is, mm, you know, we, we touched on whether this is a, an unsuccessful, a losing proposition versus the powerful proposition that seems to make history. But another another way to ask that question that might be more um, more realistic is, and I'm very interested in how, how you would answer this, is, uh, you know, if this kind of Buddhist view of being in the world and, and uh, and understanding history should be embraced would you know would industry stop uh would progress as we know it stop even in ways that you might define that as good well i think it'll um, embracing these ideas will involve um such a radical um, reexamination of uh, a whole lot of stuff we do uh, unconsciously almost every day um that I mean, I think it would be a good thing in in um, in that what we think of now of was progress were to stop some of it at least, <laughs> right? Uh, because it it just simply creates um, you know great deal of frustration and resentment and violence in in the rest of the world. Um, and um, I think if we were to re-examine these sort of very basic ideas of what are we here to do, and you know, how does one find peace? How does one find inner happiness? And what does happiness consist of? I mean, these sound like very simple questions, but I think they are, um, they, they, they really, um, in the way the Buddhists pose them, they are, they are very, very complex and they sort of, the implications just extend into every realm of, of human action. Um, of course, I mean, it's sort of, it's ludicrous to um, kind of imagine a world where, um, you know, People just sort of give up their day jobs and <laughs> retreat into some kind of Buddhist um, utopia and so on. But I think what is happening here in America, and I find the Buddhist movement here very interesting for yeah. that reason, is that uh, people have their day jobs and people are working and, you know, they have their professional careers and so on. At the same time, they're bringing uh, Buddhist insights, Buddhist ideas more and more in harmony with what they do and the kind of jobs they do, the kind of, you know careers they have and I think this is one you know way of proceeding one modest way of starting and it's not to be mocked it's not to be ridiculed just because there are very obvious contradictions <laughs> in all this uh, when we when people you know look at Bollywood film stars and think of you know they can't obviously be Buddhist it's all a big show right uh, I think that's a very um, uh, very sort of you know unrewarding way to look at um, look at this phenomena because you know these people who are who have known really very little very few other choices um when you grow up in in a culture which exalts success which exalts ambition and then you arrive at these you know places where everyone else wants to be and then you realize that actually there is a lot of discontentment and unhappiness that you still feel and then you're drawn to these you know eastern traditions and philosophy i find myself quite sympathetic to that particular plight and particular situation and um, I'm, I find it's, you know, in, in, a very, in very small, significant ways, uh, this is the kind of Buddhism that will take hold here and uh, will always be, I think, a small-scale phenomena, but it will attract, um, I think, the brightest, the sort of the most um, interesting um, members of the elite here in, in America. 
And that is the way I see it making its way into the world, into the modern world. Does it interest you also that that there are many people in this country embracing Buddhist um, philosophies and techniques alongside the practice of other religions, of Christianity and Judaism, especially? Yes, I mean, I suppose uh, Buddhism uh, is has always been um, compatible with, you know, sort of other pre-existing mm-hmm. traditions and, and religions. And that's why it's sort of taken a different form uh, uh, wherever it's traveled to, whether China or Japan or Korea. I mean, everywhere it's kind of interacted with these with these other um, yes. religions and yeah. traditions that existed there. So it's not sort of, it, uh, it does not, um, you know, call upon the believer as it were. It doesn't even have, you know, it doesn't even ask you to believe in anything. It it sort of, it just pretty pretty much leaves your you know, pre-existing religion or, or or religious loyalties intact, it it does not ask you to give them up or or anything like that. Simply because it's not engaged, it's not engaging with questions of God or if you want to yeah. believe in God. Well, that's you know that's your business. Mm-hmm. Um, you can believe in God, but the question of suffering still remains. So right. you have to deal with that. <laughs> okay. Well, I, this is just a. Uh, Tremendous! I'm I'm so glad you could make Thank the time you. to do oh, this. That was wonderful. Is there anything we you would want to say, add, or that I haven't asked you? Uh, I seem to have asked me everything. <laughs> Quite everything, yeah. but but I, I'm I'm just so glad to have discovered the book, and uh, and we will let you know what's happening with the program. Terrific. Okay. Thanks. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye.